got some questions. Go to go! You're feeling stressed, man. Go to go! Put on your GPS and go to go! I'm dirt of dirt, something is glistening. Download and listen to Tia, Katie, Chris, and Houston. You should go to go! But uh, yeah, so quick introductions. Um, Garrett is an architectural historian. Um, and he and I have worked together and, um, uh, Katie Tipton is, uh, an archeologist and Tia Cody is also an archeologist. And so in my workings with Garrett, um, oh, here's Kirsten. Oh, oh, maybe, oh. maybe. <laughs> I, I see the three dots doing the dance. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, Kirsten. Hi. Sorry for being a couple minutes late. All good. Um, I was just going to introduce uh, Garrett Root. Um, Garrett is an architectural historian. And um, in the the work that I've done with Garrett, um, as an archaeologist, I have not had very many opportunities, despite being in this industry for way too long, to work with architectural historians or built environment. And so I have been fortunate to be able to lean on Garrett for the things that are above the ground. And he leaned on me for things that are below the ground. And uh, it's, it's something that I've been stewing on for a while that um, architectural history is an often overlooked part of cultural resources. And um, so I thought it would be good for Garrett to be able to speak to that today. Um, also, Garrett, your tiki bar, your home tiki bar is incredible. Like, so he has a home tiki bar that rivals like the alibi. It's oh, that's awesome! It's freaking <laughs> that's cool, intense. and it's actually gotten better since you last saw it. <laughs> like, you know, the whole so when you sat at the bar, if you turn to the left towards the doors that you came in, uh-huh. that would hadn't really been finished last time you were here. Um, it's now been finished. Like we have bamboo in the ceilings and we've put all the paintings and, you know, uh, 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 there's a bull shark, uh, jaw on the wall. And, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, the uh the aquarium is fully well lit now so you can actually see um <laughs> you know the beers you drink you dig out of the aquarium i i took an aquarium and turned it into a um you know ice <laughs> <That's chest>. amazing. <laughs> i was yeah. waiting for you to list out your fish <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> no, just alcohol <laughs> yeah that's so cool yeah. That's fantastic. <laughs> when we bought this house, we had um, the remains, what was left of a tiki bar. They actually took the bar. Um, <laughs> the bar that had a tiki room in the basement that had been installed in like 1970. Mm-hmm. That was still original, which sounds cool until you start like cleaning and tell you what that uh bamboo there was like a grass it wasn't even the bamboo it's like a grass ceiling that they made at like i don't don't want to know (laughs) pretty pretty intense so that sounds a a fresh one sounds like a lot of fun yeah 
<laughs> yeah. Like most things you need to clean it. Um, been doing a good amount of scrubbing since Saturday. We had a party on Saturday, a post Valentine's day party. And, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, the bar gets a little sticky. So you gotta, you gotta clean <laughs> a lot of fruit juices and syrups and stuff. <laughs> yeah. 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 Whenever I'm in the sick. alibi, it's so <laughs> sticky. Like they're, it, don't go to the alibi like late at night because everything is sticky. And and it's it's only sticky because of the bartender. It's not sticky because of the patrons. The only reason <laughs> right. the bar is disgusting is because of me. I'm like a sloppy bartender. I mean, come on. It's like, you know, I, I, I do it, you know, a couple times a year and I spill all over the damn place because yeah, <laughs> of course I did. Yeah. <laughs> what I think is neat about your tiki bar though and, and your whole approach. So uh, Garrett's Tiki Bar has an Instagram account, uh, the Tahitian Pearl, and um, <laughs> it, it's cool. So uh, follow it. And but what I think is cool is is you know so much about the history of tiki drinks and like where they come from and kind of like the the founding tiki bars and like where that tiki scene came from and and all that. Every time you know, I, I get to talk about that with you. Uh, I end up learning something new and it's really cool. Yeah. The, the, the perks of being a historian are, uh, <laughs> you can really infuse, uh, some, um, authentic experience. So, uh, we literally were like, what's the time and place of our Tiki bar? And it's like, ah, well, Tahiti. So we have some French influence still, um, there, most of the items are dating the forties and fifties to try and give you that authentic feel. And then, and, and, you know, we started with that and then we're like, oh shit, we just need to buy everything, you know, uh, naval and, uh, you know, like we have, you haven't seen it yet, but there's a, you know, uh, giant stuffed octopus now hanging on our ceiling. Um, so it's totally gone off the rails, but, uh, it had a nice vision. Um, there's still parts of it that are good, you know? But, uh, <laughs> yeah. That is really cool to get to infuse it with that historical aspect, like knowing where everything comes from. And that's yeah. pretty, that's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. There's the new, one of the newest acquisitions was a, um, an original 1943 pinup calendar. And so we, you know, got her wow. and pasted her on a nice board. Um, so it kind of looks like it, it looks like, a you know, a wooden crate basically broke off three sides of it and just glued it to the wall. Um, oh, cool. That's <laughs> awesome. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of paint by numbers because the only good tall ship paintings out there are paint by numbers, as it turns out. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I had no idea. <laughs> <laughs> the things you learn. Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So in terms of... Um, architectural history and built environment. These are things that I think to most archeologists um, just sound kind of like, that's not my thing. I'm not gonna worry about that. Um, but we have at times on this podcast tried to, um, uh, you know, insert ourselves into uh, talking about old buildings and what to do with them. And so I, I feel like, uh, you know, it's only fitting for you to be here, but to start, um, could you, could you explain some of like, what exactly you do as an architectural historian? Yeah, for sure. 
Um, I'll start by saying I think it's uh, fitting that there's four archaeologists and one architectural historian. <laughs> I think that is a good um, representation of us in the industry. Um, we've, you know, we're a smaller proportion of cultural resource managers. Um, we come some, from the same nexuses in the same way. You know, we play in the same sandbox. Um, we have a very different approach as to how we do things. I do not consider myself a scientist. Um, I, you know, there's no real, um, um, kind of analysis behind what I do. Um, but we're, you know, kind of in the same sphere and I, um, I think it's uh, really interesting. Um, so in terms of what I do on a day to day, um, it's, uh, basically if you were to go back and go to undergrad or grad school and think about, uh, writing a history paper, um, it is basically that except people pay me to do that. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, historic research. Um, that's kind of the single most important thing I think about what we do, um, where you guys are finding um, things in the ground or on the surface and kind of um, interpreting what it means, I go back to the written record. Um, so we're looking at, um, you know, primary and secondary research primarily um, and really doing a deep dive to see, um, you know, how things, spaces, uh, resources, uh, building structures have evolved through historic research um, and then using that research to develop historic contexts and do evaluations for whatever your regulatory nexus would be. Um, so like section 106, section 106. Um, if you live in a state like I do that has a state law, um, and a lot of local laws, um, mm -hmm. actually a lot of what we do is, um, applying, basically the same standards that you would do for section 106, but at a local level. Um, so a lot of our work is, uh, you know, municipality, um, based, um, a lot of local historical ordinances. Um, and so, um, you know, applying those same principles, uh, of recording buildings and structures, um, doing historic research, developing historic contexts, but evaluating for local significance for the local register um, in the same way that you would for the federal or state, if you have state. What state do you live in? If California. you don't mind me asking. California. Okay. Yeah. That makes so sense. Have, <laughs> yeah. So we have the California environmental quality act CEQA, um, which uh, we evaluate things for the California register of historical resources, which is exactly the same as the national register of historical places they just uh changed the name and changed the criteria uh from abcd to one two three four <laughs> there's some slight, slight variations um we don't we don't have the 50 year rule in the same way so you're not um making a cutoff at 50 years of something to achieve significance um, there's actually nothing in CEQA that says anything about it. age. Um, a lot of state agencies will kind of apply a 45 year rule. Um, but all the same, it's, um, uh, still going through the same motions of, you know, mm -hmm. research evaluation, applying the, you know, significance criteria, 
uh, determining if you know a resource would be eligible. That's I'm kind of by it. the yeah, I was like, I'm <laughs> by the one, two, three, because you know, remembering A, B, C, and D, at least there's like a little bit of like a you know rhyme or reason to it, you know, A and they're exactly the same. House. Yeah. So, so, so when I do evaluations and stuff, I'll do a slash one, B slash two, C slash three. Um, it's, they, they line up the same. Um, I mean, if you get into some like local uh, historic preservation ordinances, it gets really weird. Like if you're doing a project in the city of Oakland, you have to do use a, um, that's awful. You have to use like a, um, like a sheet where you do math and you add up the numbers. And if it hits a certain number, then it's eligible under this. It's terrible. Um, hmm. So <laughs> it's like trying to make a qualitative assessment, a quantitative assessment. That is accurate. And I am Very not a math person and I hate it. Um, <laughs> yeah. Almost like you're doing a poll of the architecture. You know, like, yeah. so house number 326, have you experienced? <laughs> right. right. <laughs> no, it's even more mundane than that. It's like um, taking into account the number of original windows and versus um, uh, replacement windows and subtracting it. And how does that affect? So oh. it's, it's trying to quantify integrity, which is an interesting way of doing things honestly if you think about it but um it yeah. just never quite works mm. <laughs> oakland mm. <laughs> yeah. tell us how you really feel yeah <laughs> <laughs> exactly this so, is actually the oakland podcast <laughs> yeah. Damn surprise yeah. hanging up now yeah. <laughs> we've switched from the portland podcast to the oakland podcast let's go into oakland's uh historic resource code <laughs> now uh so garrett um how does one become an architectural historian um Kind of the same way you guys find archaeology, I think. Um, I, for my personal experience, I, I realized when I went into undergrad that I liked history. Um, I realized at a, you know, 18, 19 year old that I didn't want to go straight into being a teacher. Not to say that being a teacher is not a noble professional profession. I just couldn't see myself doing it at 19 or 20. Um, and being the same age as, you know, high school students or something to that effect, or a few years older. Um, and so I, the only other thing the guidance counselor told me I could do was be an insurance agent, which seems <laughs> stupid, but, uh, apparently a high number of, uh, people with history degrees become insurance agents more, you know, oh. um, so in undergrad, I actually locked down. I uh, met a professor who told me about public history and how you can do history and not end up as a teacher or an insurance agent. Again, nothing to slight the teachers of the world because they do amazing work. Uh, insurance agents, eh, whatever. Um, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I worked in an insurance agency when I was in high school, so I could say shit like that. Um, but... Um, <laughs> So I met a professor, he told me about public history and taught me uh, about how you can do history uh, for consulting, 
uh, for archives, for museums. And so in undergrad, I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. Um, I had met a per through the professor. We had a, a bunch of, um, guest speakers and one of the guest speakers, um, was at a company locally here in, in Davis, California. And I was like, oh, I want to work for those guys. And so I went through undergrad, you know, got my bachelor's in history, certificate in public history, went straight into grad school here at Sacramento State uh, in public history and um, got an internship at that, that company that I wanted to work for. And so, um, yeah, so for me, it was um, a pretty clear path. Um, I think the majority of people kind of fall into it. Um, of the people that have graduated from the Sacramento State Public History Program, the majority of them seem to gravitate towards archives as, or, or museum studies um, as um, kind of the vocation that they want to head towards. Um, but I don't know if you've noticed during the pandemic, museums don't exist anymore. Um, yeah. and a lot of them realized that that one class that they kind of blew off is probably going to be the best bet for them to get a paying job. So a lot of the people within the field right now, or at least in the last, or at least as long as I've been paying attention, 10, 12 years a lot of them are people who have focused on archives or museums and then realize there's, or, or, to, or to be a professor and realize there's not enough professorships, there's not enough archives positions, and there's sure as hell not enough museum positions. And they end up in consultant, consulting that way. Mm -hmm. um, there are a fair number of us who like pursued it straight forth, you know, wanted to be doing this um, and kind of went after it. But I think a lot of people, uh, or at least, yeah, just kind of by observing what people were studying, uh, most wanted to do something else. <laughs> <laughs> at least locally. I, I know a lot of people that went to, you know, specific historic preservation, uh, you know, um, programs in different schools, um, and they're very specific at what they were going to go after. But um, at least locally, I think, I think with, and I think that's important in terms of what you get your uh, master's degree in, because there's so many um, programs that kind of are catch-alls for architectural history. Um, you get kind of this broad spectrum of people. So, you know, mm -hmm. again, my, my degrees in public history, which is kind of this amorphous whatever title, but then there's people that have masters of historic conservation, historic conservation, historic preservation, history, uh, architectural history, um, just regular history. And they all can qualify, um, as an architectural historian or historian under the secretary of the interior standards. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I think it, it varies widely, um, based on where people went to school. Know, that answer it yeah totally yeah and that's good to know and interesting because um i ended up similarly and i think there's a similar story with a lot of archaeologists kind of stumbling into crm calling like oh this is a thing after they finished undergrad um but i didn't learn about architectural history until i was out of undergrad and 
knew that CRM was a thing. And I'm like, oh, wait, what? I could have done that. <laughs> I love archaeology, but my, my, I had sold real estate previous, was my previous life's career. Um, so I had gained this like background knowledge and love of historic homes. Sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, you know, depending on the trajectory, the university that I went to had a, his, uh, a history program, historical architectural program, but it was in the architecture school, which was totally disconnected from anthropology and archaeology. So I, I thought that was really a bizarre like thing. So it's good to know that like people can get into it in a less direct, mm-hmm. and, way. <laughs> and and that's where it gets weird too, because you know what I do, architectural history is very straight but but so much of um what people conflate as what we do is historic architecture so i'm not a historic architect i have no training in architecture whatsoever i have training in the history of how people have designed things i am not i don't know how to do a cad i don't know how to use cad i don't know how to make drawings um, and they're often um, confused. And I, you know, I've worked at big engineering firms and I've worked at small firms and uh, the confusion abounds in both places. Um, <laughs> you know, architects thinking that I can come in and, you know, uh, redesign a facade for them um, or, you know, <laughs> local small architect or, or Archaeologists thinking that, you know, we can go after certain types of projects when we sure as hell can't. Um, and, and I think <laughs> that's part of the problem with this profession is um, the words are too close to each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good point, though. That took me years to get that straight. Like there were so many times just because I wasn't familiar enough with what an architectural historian does. Mm -hmm. There were so many times where I would make that very same mistake. And I I would be like, Oh, a historic architect. No, wait. Um, which one are they? And I would have to like, think my way through it. Like, no, they're an architectural historian, which is a type of historian that's looking at a building and saying, these are the historic characteristics of a building. And then it even gets more complicated because, you know, for my background, I very rarely looked at architecture. Um, I'm infrastructure. <laughs> so like, let's, let's, oh, yeah. let's split hairs here. Yes. Um, I, I, you know, most of my career um, has been posted on, posted on, focused on infrastructure. So a lot of you, you think architectural history, the word architecture, you're thinking buildings, you're thinking commercial, residential, industrial, and not even really industrial because people forget about it. But like <laughs> the majority of the things that I'm looking at are structures. So if you were to actually go look at National Register Bulletin 15 and read the difference between buildings and structures, all of that falls within architectural history. Um, but you know, the things I've focused on are canals dams, uh, <laughs> transmission lines, powerhouses, 
Um, like <laughs> water, and it always <laughs> makes me laugh. Everyone says, oh, I do, you know, oh, architectural historians do above ground. I was like, no, canal is underground. It's at grade and below grade. <laughs> True. Um, I've done plenty of water pipelines. I've never laid eyes on them, but I know the history of them through their uh, historic documentation. Um, so, it, it, you know, it's, it's more nuanced than just being um, pretty buildings. And I think mm -hmm. a lot of the times people just associate it with uh, Frank Lloyd Wright or uh, Julia Morgan or, you know, our famous architects. The amount of times that I've evaluated a building that was designed by someone who was notable, maybe 8%, maybe 6%. Wow. Most of the time, I'm I'm trying to figure out what type of uh, transmission line that is, or uh, what um, what standard plan armory that is, or um, you know what type of tank tower. Um, these aren't high style things, um, and and that's what I think is probably most interesting about this field is it's. It's really broad, <laughs> but most people think of it as very narrow. Yeah. Tipton and I work um, for a federal agency and we're both super lucky to get to work with two um, historians. And I'm always blown away by like their research ability astounds me. And as you were saying, like your ability to like pull documents out of the ether and be like this one deed tells you mm -hmm. everything you need to know and that they can take things that I, as an archeologist, like a water tower or something. And like, I don't like, I want to care, but it's like hard. My like little archeology span brain is like, no, but it's not like, it's not in the ground <laughs> and they'll take it and they'll show it. And it just becomes this whole unique thing that I'd never thought about that they showed like this whole town sprung up around this water tower that provided it like a resource that it didn't have. And this allowed this town to, and it was just, it's fascinating how you guys are able to take stuff that I think people just like drive past or look past and really show that so much has such a deep history and has so many unique things to them. So I'm always blown away by your guys's uh, abilities. Yeah, thank you. I, I think <laughs> the thing that's interesting about that statement is so many people attribute importance to just being old. So mm -hmm. like in that example, everyone's like, oh, well, that water tower has been there forever. Well, so it takes an architectural historian to go doing the research and identify if uh, it's a unique type. If it, uh, you know, what is its history and how is it associated with important events? And like so mm -hmm. much of what we do is, I don't want to say dismiss, dismissing um, the myth around things, but honestly it is like, there's so much, um, you know, I, I work with local agencies and local historic societies a lot, and they're very much passionate about certain resources and not to say they're not significant because they have um, importance in their lives or, um, or importance um, uh, to that city, um, but it doesn't always necessarily uh, mean that it's historically significant. So, so much of that is like, 
being able to do the research to show it is or it isn't. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's what kind of differentiates what I do versus, you know, just uh, I don't want to say white historians, but, you know, people who are just uh, volunteering or something like that. Mm. Mm-hmm. So in addition to searching through archives, what does field work look like for architectural historians? That's interesting. Um, it's interesting because for the last several years, I've spent a lot of time scoping these things and like, mm-hmm. oh, how much time does it take to do field work? And um, working with archaeologists all the time, everyone's like, oh, well, we'll just put a bunch of, you know, your guys's hours are largely focused on field work. Um, I can document probably, you know, three, four buildings in an hour, probably less. I could probably, you know, if I was really to be honest, like I could document a house in like five minutes. Um, and so field work is such a small component, but it's construed to be such a big component in what archaeology is. So <laughs> I've um, just started mashing research hours into field work mm-hmm. um, because mm-hmm. no one bats an eye at how many hours it takes to do field work. But if you put, oh, well, it's going to take, you know, 24 hours to research this building, you're like, oh, my God, that's way too much. Why can't you do it for four hours? So I just shove research hours into <laughs> fieldwork hours and no one notices. There's my secret. Uh, go dig a hole podcast. Um, okay, but, we're going to make this one a Patreon-only episode. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I gave away all my secrets. But it's true. Like, fieldwork is not this... Um, mystical thing um i i mean given that we all have cameras you do have to get certain angles and make sure you you know get the scenery and this and the other but you can get so much from a photograph that you really don't have to take as much time as you used to have to do in terms of writing notes and things like that Mm. there are um Basically, uh, aside from taking the photos, the things that I focus on are um, the uh, the relationships to other buildings, to other structures, to roadways, to um, landscape. Um, so, taking notes on you know how um, a property is um, located within the larger parcel. Um, Chris and I were working on a project a while, not too long ago where we had the same thing where, you know, people were so focused on the buildings and I was like, okay, you got to take a step back and tell me about the (laughs) interspatial relationships between the building, the barns, (laughs) the levees, the dikes, because all of that makes the property. And I think that's probably the biggest difference from architectural history and archeology span is we're always, you know, archeology span is very focused on, you know, making, I mean, you'll, you'll find sites and sites will be big. Um, but architectural history, you've got to kind of look up and look around. Um, (laughs) and I think that's often lost, um, Mm -hmm. because, uh, just how we're thinking of things is different. Um, Mm -hmm. so yeah, so most of my time, if I'm, when I'm taking notes in the field, Aside from, you know, taking the photos, um, I, I'm looking for um, the big differences. So I'm looking at window types. I'm looking at 
how many windows are original versus vinyl sliders crap or how much um, are um, you know um, replacement siding what's the roof type you know the quick dirty differences because the photo I'll be able to tell that it's a two-story you know four square or I'll be able to tell that it's um, you know roughly built within these time frames based on the style um, but I won't be able to tell when I get back, you know, is the siding vinyl or is it wood? Because vinyl and wood look the same. I bought the house that we live in now. It's a 1924 house. Um, it took us a couple of months to realize that, well, not a couple of months after we moved in, realized the outside siding is vinyl, not wood, because they look the same. Um, <laughs> um, so when you're out in the field, you go and touch things, honestly, and that's, and then you take notes on them because you're not going to notice those in a photo. Um, mm -hmm. but that's, that's really what field work is. The rest of it is research. I mean, the, I I'd say field work is 10% research is 60%. Mm. I guess on an offshoot question would be how much time, or I guess this is less applicable during COVID times, um, but how often do you find yourself having to go to archives or to like uh, county offices and stuff like that to look for stuff that's not scanned? He's asking too. Sorry. Yeah, it's fair. Um, it, 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 uh, COVID has certainly affected our ability to get at the resources um, a lot. Um, I'd say prior to COVID, 80% uh, of our research was in person. Um, it's flipped now. 80% is digital. Um, there is not as much information scanned. Everyone thinks like, well, not everyone. A lot of people think that so much, you can get so much from the internet and this, that, and the other, and you, you can, and it's come a long way even in, even since, you know, I finished undergrad uh, 13 years ago. Um, so much more scanned than there was, uh, than there is now. Um, but there's thousands, millions of documents that aren't scanned. Um, you know, like you said, deed research, um, counties have come a long way in scanning grants and, uh, deed records and things like that. Um, there's, there's no way they're even close yet. I mean, most of those are in giant bound books of grantee versus grantor. And you, then you have to search the scan, the grantor grantee index. And it's, I mean, they're just, just for one County, it's probably millions of pages, um, or at least several hundreds of thousands of pages. Um, so how we do research has changed. Um, I find that, you know, if I look back at a document that I wrote five years ago, um, I may have one paragraph and it may have 15 sources for that one paragraph today. It's two or three. Um, and that's just what's available. You know, archives still aren't mm -hmm. reopening. They're just starting to reopen in California. Um, barely, uh, local historical mm -hmm. societies appointment only if, if at all, um, so we've made do, um, and it's, it, it works. Um, but I still don't feel comfortable, <laughs> super comfortable about it. About it. I, I'd much rather be going to the archives of the local repositories and, you know, digging through their moldy records in their closet, 
um, because that's where the real research is. Um, mm -hmm. But you still can glean enough from digital only as long as you know you're, where you're looking. Mm. Off of that for researching, what's your favorite like resource to research? Like what do you just like could go down rabbit holes forever on? Um, I, I find myself spending a lot of time in newspapers, um, uh, mostly because it's all subject keyword searches. Um, so I find, you know, like if I'm researching a property, I'll research, um, I'll start with like the specific address. And then if I don't find anything, I'll go to just the street name. And then if I don't find the street name, then I'll go to like the, uh, the lot uh, the lot number or the APN. Cause oftentimes, um, like the teens through the forties in a lot of cities, they would list the actual lot numbers. So you could get a hit on just the lot number. So not to say it's my favorite, but I spend a lot of time there because I know that the information is not plain and simple. Um, so I have to go through all the different, um, means to see if I can, find the information. Um, I, I will say I like maps. Um, and it annoys me because, uh, <laughs> when, when I write the methodology section or I'm editing a methodology section, uh, for a report and it was, you know, primarily authored archaeologist seems like all you guys look at is maps uh, which annoys the hell out of me because That's it's fair. like GLOs and yeah. US topos maps and I'm like they're fine <laughs> Uh, but that's like, Noted. you know, if you're researching something in town, you don't need to go to a GLO. You're not going to find anything in, unless you're really looking at like, you know, you know, uh, land grant or something. But most of the time it's been developed as a city for hundred years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I do like maps because um, I find that there are a fair amount of ownership maps that people don't know how to identify or find that I've just over the years um, compiled a pretty extensive list of like places to look. Um, so I'm, I always, that's usually where I get my best research because I just know where to go at this point. Um, and photos, people would kind of dismiss photos as uh. like a, as a resource type. Um, but there's huge amount of historic archives that <laughs> upload millions of photos, millions of photos. Like, the California State uh, Library has a massive collection of photos of everything. And so they've been collecting them for as long as photos have been made and they've scanned a huge portion of them. And so you'd be surprised the amount of times that you can do research and actually find a photo of your building or a photo of your intersection or get like a, you know, or, you know, a snippet of one building or um, uh, you'd be surprised. So photos are an often overlooked source for archaeology too. I've, there's been a fair amount of times I've been, you know, working with folks and um, would, you know, do photo research and was able to show an actual historic photo of what building was there. And they're like, oh, well, it was brick. Well, that's why you're finding a bunch of bricks in the ground, <laughs> um, you know, things like that. <laughs> well, that's really cool because I just, for us, since you don't like reading some of the stuff and you're like, oh, an archaeologist wrote this, is are there like <laughs> top three or four sources that we can use to help in our research to kind of 
get a step up. Not saying we're going to take your job, but we want to help where we can. Uh, you, you, most archaeologists try it anyways. Um, <laughs> but don't want to. Because we're not historians. We're not SOI qualified. <laughs> we, we, know, we know where our limits lie, but where can we help? Yeah, yeah no, many no. firms do it anyhow, though. <laughs> They'll pass archaeologists off as architectural historians. It's it's an important thing that I want to touch on at some point, maybe okay. now or never. But nope. but 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 it but it is something where, um, and I think it's just maybe the longevity of um, our professions. You know, architectural history really hasn't existed as a profession since about. Mm, really 1975 onward it's you know still a relatively mm. new career whereas archaeology is old and so i think <laughs> there's you know a fair amount of um ah, i can do that um i've met many archaeologists that try and you know do both and um less architectural historians that do both um <laughs> so mm -hmm. it's it's an interesting dichotomy within crm um, but in terms of research um, things that I think are often overlooked, um, one would be assessor records, um, mm -hmm. assessing property. Uh, and so it, it gives you values. Um, so assessors go out and, you know, assess, you know, if you own a house, they assess the property value of your home. Um, oftentimes they'll put, they'll make maps. Um, and so they'll depict where things are located um, uh, and the maps are invaluable. Um, if they have the maps, they're great. They don't always do them, but if they do, um, they show you um, how many resource, you know, how many property types are on parcel um, in the same way that a Sanborn would, uh, but they're mm -hmm. more up to date. Um, so Sanborns, you know, you'll see them in 1912 and then update in 1950, um, assessors <laughs> yeah. will be much more common and they'll have, mm. you know, you know, they'll do assessments every time a property is sold or if the city reassesses, um, values of properties. Um, so sometimes you, you won't see a map, but it'll say, you know, you know, look at one property and it's worth 50 bucks uh, in 1912. And then you come back in 1925 and it's worth 3000, you know, you can do the quick appreciation value. Um, the property did not appreciate that much just based on, you know, land value. It's because they built things. So then you know that mm. it's been developed. Gotcha. Um, other resources, definitely photos. There's, like I said, every single, library archive has millions of photos scanned um and it's a quick and easy and honestly a lot of them are geo-referenced <laughs> so uh you'll be able to actually go to like the actual intersection or there's certain search depending on where you're at you can honestly like drop a pin and it'll just pull up every photo for that location um and so that's really helpful and then newspapers i think newspapers are probably the most valuable thing I use. Um, and for, if you're doing historic archeology, span um, there's really no better resource. Um, you will get to the information the fastest that way. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, so many newspapers are scanned and available. Um, you know, there's free repositories of newspapers in certain States, um, or there's paid subscriptions or, um, actually here, this is my best tidbit. 
anytime you go to field work somewhere, go to the library, get a library card, lie where you live, um, and get a library card. Um, <laughs> because then you can take that home and you can use that to get their newspapers for free. Oh, I'm, I'm taking genius. that too. Yeah. God damn it. Genius. I just like ruined all of my time. Yeah. It's so smart. More for Patreon. Maybe we should start paywalling <laughs> these episodes. I don't know. <laughs> I, I you literally just said have, LA. We're good. I know. I literally yeah. have an LA public library card and a San Francisco public library card and a Sacramento public library card. I only live in Sacramento, um, but I use the Chronicle and I use the LA, um, whatever the LA. LA Chronicle. Oh, um, I don't LA remember. LA Times. Yeah, that one. Um, because <laughs> if you if you log in through their stuff, you get a login and you get access to those for free. And if you can get one major local newspaper for free, it's honestly all you'll need. Yeah. Um, unless you're like looking awesome. at something really rural, um, and then it it pays to have either <laughs> a collection of library cards or you just pay for some of the um, paid subscriptions like newspaper archive or mm. newspapers.com. Newspapers three. <laughs> yep. <laughs> so kind of similar to Tipton's earlier question, is there, what is your favorite historic built resource? So what is your most favorite thing to record? And then what is your least favorite? Like if you mm. never have to see one of them ever again, <laughs> it will be too yes. soon. <laughs> yeah. Um, least favorite gas stations. I hate them. Um, I've recorded so many gas stations, uh, and they're all mostly formulaic aside from like someone like crazy hyperbolic roofs, you know, like very mid-century googie, like crazy roof lines. But most of the time they're just like a gas station from 1978. It's got terrible, like, um, uh, fake brick or fake rock on the outside, you know, think the Brady bunch <laughs> and it's just, they're terrible and I hate them. And I, I wish I didn't have to record them. I, and I also hate, and this is more of treading into archeology, span but I end up getting stuck with them are fences. I hate fences. I don't care about a fence. What does it tell you? They had a property line. Good job. We can find right. that in research everywhere. Um, I don't ever want to record barbed wire or anything ever again. Um, I think, Oh, look, a row of cedar trees, birds <laughs> sat on a wire and pooped here. <laughs> no, you've been, you'd be surprised the amount of like tree rows that we've evaluated and they found them as eligible because they oh have association God. with, um, either most of the time it's, um, their windbreaks and their windbreaks mm -hmm. for a resource on the other side. And so because, and because they've become associated with that road, you know, other oh, iconic, all oh, the, you know, the stupid eucalyptus road oh. trees or the row of olive trees, because there was an olive orchard here in the 1870s when we had olives, but no one's had olives in these areas for <laughs> 120 years. So there are times where tree rows actually are, but yeah, whatever. Um, favorite resources. <laughs> I really like, um, power plants. Um, <laughs> hmm, okay. um, I, I do a lot. I've done a lot of hydroelectric power plants and I really like, um, I like 
basically if I was better at math, I would have been an engineer. Um, and I'm mm. not, so I really enjoy the history of, um, technical things. Um, mm. so like one time I recorded uh, a cyclotron, which is basically where they spin things fast round and round to smash atoms together. Um, as a science experiment, it's basically how we got the atomic bomb and nuclear power and all those things. Um, but these like <laughs> really geeky science projects that, you know, nerds built at universities, like those as resources are so strange, but so unique and so interesting to me, um, because they're, you know, they're one of a kind, um, and they're purpose built for a specific thing. Um, mm -hmm. I find I like lots of types of architecture, but like if, and, and I spend a fair amount of time just going out and photographing interesting buildings, but if for work, um, if, if I was to pick a resource type, yeah, it would honestly be something like dams or powerhouses. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of, um, you going out and taking photos of things, you have an Instagram account, Retro Route, where you go around and take photos of buildings and you describe the building. And it is mm -hmm. one of, it's one of my favorite Instagram accounts. Thanks. Yeah, no, I, 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 there's a fair amount of people on Instagram that just go take pictures of pretty buildings. I make sure to take a little bit more time and at least figure out when it was built, who mm -hmm. it was built for, and kind of, a brief history. So <laughs> like my latest Instagram post was on these, there's these massive bank buildings in California. I've seen a few of them around and they were for the home savings and loan bank, um, which existed in from like the forties through the seventies before they were bought out by Washington mutual and then chase bank. Mm -hmm. Anyways, there are these kind of monumental, you know, bunker like structures. They're just huge granite, you know, they have big granite or marble faces um, and they're just oversized, which for an architectural style, I find really fascinating because it's supposed to, you know, give you this sense of welcoming this sense of this is a grand institution, which architecture today kind of misses. Um, mm -hmm. But you would see that really commonly more commonly in like the forties and well, anything before the fifties. Um, but, but for like a bank, it's interesting. And so they, they had these, they have these massive mosaic panels on them. And I've driven by this bank thousand or hundreds of times, you know, since I've lived in Sacramento and I finally just pulled over and took photos of it. <laughs> so I have a post about this weird 1978 bank, um, with these like giant gold rush mosaics on the side of them. Um, yeah, so that's, that's, you know, I, I like to travel and I like to take photos of things, but I make sure to like give a brief overview of the style, what makes the style important. Um, and if I have enough time to do a little bit of research and figure out, you know, why it exists. Why that's awesome here. <laughs> yeah. Why is this a thing? Yeah. Yeah. And the thing that I learned uh, by looking at that post about the, the big grandiose uh, bank buildings was that that style of 
um, that style is called new formalism. And that's a term that I had never seen before. And so like, mm-hmm. that's something that I dig about your, your Instagram is uh, I learned something from every post. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> Achievement unlocked. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so there's, so we've talked about architectural history and built environment. This is, it's not just, uh, you know, houses and, and, uh, commercial buildings, but it's also, you know, gas stations, fence lines, canals, ditches. Um, you guys can keep the fences. I was just ranting against fences. I don't, I don't want them to them. We don't want them either though. No, like I can dumps. we hate them. I hate can dumps too, but yeah. Like <laughs> you like can dumps? Well, come to California I, and record all the can dumps because I hate no, them all. I've, I've done enough down there. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. <laughs> um, Oh, where was I going with this? Oh, planning. So the kind of the, the way that there's so many overlaps with, um, the things that are cultural resources that are not archeology. span Um, so architectural history, um, you, you also work with planners too. How much overlap does that have with architectural history? A lot. And that's the, the other thing I, there's so many words to describe what we do and we do all of them most of the time. Like there's certain people that will just do one very specific thing, but so many of us who have worked in firms that have multiple disciplines, we end up doing, excuse me, aspects of all of the things. So the words you'll hear are history, architectural history, preservation, planning, historic preservation, conservation, um, and maybe aside from conservation, all of those other ones can kind of be lumped under architectural history or are aspects of architectural history. Um, but yeah, preservation planning or planning in general is a huge aspect of what a lot of us do. I, I don't want to cast a wide net and get angry viewers being like, I've never done that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but, it's behind a paywall anyhow they've got to pay i'm just kidding <laughs> <laughs> but but we do work often with uh cities and planning agencies um probably more so than archaeologists um mostly because there's a f- if you think about where the resources are they're in cities a lot of the times um and so um, you're going to be doing things with local planning, planning agencies, like the planning agency put out an RFP and the RFP says, we need a historic context for this neighborhood. Well, you're going to work with the planners to do that. And the neighborhood is specific to, um, how it associates with the city's general plan. Um, and it ties into, uh, you know, significance criteria for the city of, you know, these are the established criteria of what makes, what, what makes, I don't know, making up a town, mill city important, um, you know, has association with mills. Um, and so, um, so historic context are one of the ways, but some of the other things are, um, you know, big surveys in cities or, um, design guidelines. So one of the things we do, um, some of is, um, a city wants to, um, 
they have a historic preservation ordinance um, and they want to streamline how um, projects go through the planning process. Um, we can help develop design guidelines that uh, show uh, what types of projects will fit within historic historic districts or with adjacent yeah. to historic buildings. Um, you can do it for, you know, specifically for historic districts too. Um, you can come up with, uh, we, we often work with cities to, um, uh, you know, evaluate projects to see if they'll fit within a neighborhood. Um, we can do things like Mills Act, uh, no, Mills Act is a California thing, but uh, tax credits, you know, ways to offset uh, rehabilitation of buildings. Um, and that's, that's got a planning component. Um, it's, it's a lot. And, um, I think the more you get into it, the more you realize that, you know, architectural history is just a lot more broad, um, in that you can, you can really make it tied to a lot of things. Um, and so, um, so yeah, I, I, you know, I've done a lot of work with cities over the years. Um, most of the time, you know, it's like acting on behalf of the planner, um, mm -hmm. to review applications to determine if, uh, if the other consultants report was adequate or, um, will the new design fit within the historic district or reviewing the plans, uh, the architecture plans to determine if the uh, um, fenestration and the um, siding is appropriate. Um, and so, um, I don't know, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> Related to it's that, cool. sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna say, it's cool to think about um, like how much can go into these kinds of things, like those historic neighborhoods and, and the thought and process and behind it. And that, you know, that there's an architectural historian somewhere who did a lot of work <laughs> to help. Like I know in the state that I grew up, Boulder was that way. It had a lot of historic districts because they were trying to protect the city itself. And then uh, they had a lot of like, you know, those ordinances, like you said, like building things to help, keep it the, that way. And I remember at the time that I was so frustrated by it because it made my stuff a little harder, but you know, as I grew older as an archeologist being like, it's really cool that they, and that an architectural historian probably helped them put that together. Yep. Yeah. Um, oh, I was going to say something and I forgot someone else go. Uh, <laughs> well, related to historic districts um, and and local ordinances, um, another thing that I think a lot of archaeologists are not familiar with is certified local government. That's what I was um, going to say. <laughs> all right. You want to go for that? Sure. So um, the National Park Service has a big pot of money and a set of guidelines um, that cities can apply for. So cities uh, can go through a process and become a quote, certified local government. And what that means is uh, they meet a specific set of criteria as established by the National Park Service. 
And through that, they can get funding um, so long as they adhere to the guidelines of the CLG, Certified Local Government. Um, and through that, the, they get grants. Usually they're matching grants. So um, each year, at the usually in January, February, March, they apply um, to go after uh, funding for the third quarter of the fiscal year um, to do specific projects. So like writing historic context for um, underrepresented communities, um, doing historic surveys, doing evaluations or national register nominations for specific buildings, uh, doing rehabilitation plans, uh, developing historic district guidelines, um, these are all things that fall under the guise of, um, CLG funds. Um, and so a lot of cities, um, are a part of this across the U S. Um, and I mean, generally there's like matching funds because honestly, CLG grants usually aren't that much money because, <laughs> <laughs> shock the united states doesn't fund <laughs> preservation that well um or infrastructure but, or infrastructure yeah. or anything but yeah Weird. but um so they have to split up this money amongst all those you know cities across the u.s that are clgs um so a lot of times cities will match the funds so if they go after a grant for 20 they'll put in 20 and it'll be a forty thousand dollar grant which is still never enough to do what you need to do but we make do mm -hmm. um it's a great program and it's something that um we do a lot of and we should be doing more of um in terms of architectural history but also all cultural resource practitioners because there is grant opportunities under clgs for broader things other than just architectural history um mm -hmm. but um yeah so we we, I have done a fair amount of work um, with steel cheese. Uh, this is where the kind of planner side comes into a lot of this because most of the time they're, they're for small local agencies or local municipalities that, you know, don't have a historic preservation officer. They don't have a preservation planner. They have a generalist planner who's also the dog catcher and, um, <laughs> <laughs> and you know city manager <laughs> and you have to kind of explain this to them um but um it gives you a lot of opportunity to kind of show how historic preservation can benefit a community um and you can couple it with other types of incentives um you know you can use it as a you know there's been a lot of times where you know i'd say like um, you know, let's do a historic context for this neighborhood. And then we can also go after a tax credit, you know, federal historic tax credit project, um, to rehabilitate this mill and mill city and make it a community center. So you can usually, you know, couple things together. Um, and, um, like all things in capitalism, they, um, appreciate when you show how it makes them money. Um, but show that historic preservation um, and preservation planning in the history um, can be important beyond just like the kitsch of like, this is our old downtown, you know, it's like, no, you can make it a vibrant part of your community. You can redevelop a neighborhood um, and get funding to do it. Stop. Sorry, cat biting my cord. 
Cats and building codes. Cats. <laughs> There's the koozie, I... building codes and cats. <laughs> Are you happy now? Can you go away? Full uh, circle. Full circle. Yeah. Um, did any of y'all have any more questions for Garrett? I know we're running pretty close on time. No, mine were asked. <laughs> yeah, same here. <laughs> well, thank you for, this has been awesome. I've learned so much. I've like got so many little notes here and all yeah. the li library cards that I'm going to be getting in the future. <laughs> oh, hell yeah. I also, to be honest, I did not ever fully understand what a CLG was. Like I knew it based on like, you know, the regs, but I was like, I didn't know what it actually was. So when you were like, oh, a certified local government is, I was like, I finally know what that is. <laughs> <laughs> I finally understand. <laughs> Too many acronyms in this industry. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> you have to pick and choose. <laughs> yeah. I think my take my takeaway from this episode, but also my takeaway from working with Garrett is work closely with architectural historians, like archaeologists out there. If you work in a company that has architectural historians, just bug them with a lot of questions like I do with Garrett. And, mm -hmm. you know, you'll learn a lot of stuff and it'll make you a better archaeologist. We're, and bake you know, them brownies in payment. Exactly. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we're here to help, you know, we, like we, I jokingly said, we play in the same sandbox, but we do. Yeah. Um, and there's no reason why we should be kind of these separate spheres. Um, we may come to different conclusions and kind of look at things slightly different. Um, but we benefit, benefit each other more than, you know, being separate. Um, some of the best firms I've worked for over the years are the ones that, you know, integrate the two really well. Um, you know, and the ones that <laughs> don't do well are the ones where we feel like we're, you know, uh, pariahs and archeology span does everything. Um, you know, we just, we want the same goals and we have the same interests and, um, the amount of times people have asked me, Hey, can you quickly do research on something? And I pull something out of, you know, in five minutes and I'm like, Oh my God, I've never found that before. That makes my day. Um, that, that's, that's the kind of stuff I love doing. Yeah. Yeah. That's the kind of stuff that makes me a better archeologist is, is like you said, knowing where to look, um, is learning better research skills and kind of broadening the toolkit that we work with. Um, but also just expanding like the quality of the research we do by incorporating architectural historians. Um, and Kirsten, you had an interesting point earlier that I've been ruminating on about how like going through undergrad, we often don't have exposure to architectural history or even history because it's just not in the anthropology department. Um, and I feel like that echoes into the professional sphere where, um, often archaeologists still don't have a lot of exposure to architectural historians um, or history because, uh, you know, it just echoes that divide. Break it down. <laughs> Snaps, man. Snaps. <laughs> yes, it's definitely something I've been learning more about in my own 
trying to learn about the house that I own. Garrett, you mentioned a little bit about your house. Um, and we are currently in the midst of uh, starting a remodel. And I'm like, let me go take pictures of the beams before you like put the drywall up. <laughs> and stuff like that. And he's like, what? I'm like, I don't know if it's a kit house. Kit houses were a thing in this area. There's a bunch of different manufacturers. But this house is so different than any in the neighborhood. I'm always like, I want to know more. Because, um, of course, you know, like most places, nothing was ever permitted. And it's just realizing how much I don't know um, as I go through this process. And just definitely big props to historians who do all the research things that I thought I knew how to do. And then I'm trying to find out, like, basic stuff about my house. And I'm like... I'm in where <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that made me think of the difference between kid house and plan book house um, is a lot. Most people think everything's a kit house and most things are actually plan book houses. So basically you could order architecture plans and it gave you the entire list of all of the materials you needed to buy. And then you just paid an architect to build it based off the plans. Plan book houses were super common all the way through, you know, seventies, even into the eighties. Um, wow. and there you'll, you'll see a lot of plan book houses that people think are kit houses because they look the same, but it's literally, you know, one developer bought one plan kit houses are like, everything is bought and shipped and sold in one go. They're like a Sears catalog mm -hmm. kit house, but yeah. a plan book house is a lot more common. Um, it's yeah. interesting. No, that is, <laughs> Sorry, that is weird. No, that's, that's, that is good to know because that is a distinction. I hadn't heard of plan book houses. I'd just seen reference to like five different kit house or, you know, what was it? Like catalog order houses or whatever out of the Portland mm -hmm. area. Um, that had originated elsewhere in the country, but there was so much logging here, blah, 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 blah. Um, so I'm like, okay, well, where do I find all of these pictures? Like all of these, you know, and I'm like, I may be looking at the wrong thing. Just those mm -hmm. simple keywords can make a big difference. Archive.org. I bet yes. you'll find it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I, I've, I've gone too deep. Love it. Gone too deep. It's time for a tiki drink. Um, <laughs> links will be in the show notes below. Retro Root on Instagram, Tahitian Pearl on Instagram, archive.org. <laughs> Brought to you by archive.org. <laughs> you want to sponsor us, archive.org. Uh, yeah. Garrett, thank you so much for joining us. This was really of fun. No, this is great. I My cheeks hurt from smiling for this entire time. It's good to <laughs> laugh. It is. <laughs>